We're going to open to, again, the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 13 this morning. Matthew 13. I thought about a, a separate uh, sermon to remind us of the events of Palm Sunday, but I think with the passage that we read in, in the Gospel of John, I just began to realize how much of a tie-in there was, even with what the Lord just has for us in our um, working through of, of the Gospel of Matthew. So we're just going to continue in that this morning. And we're beginning chapter 13, and I want to remind you that we're in the third major section of Matthew. This runs from chapters 11 to 13, and it is a section in which Matthew records varying responses to Jesus and His claims and His ministry. And then when you get to chapter 13, Matthew strings together seven stories that Jesus told to explain and to illustrate the kingdom of God and people's responses to the kingdom of God. These stories we call parables. Parables. Now, a parable is often a story analogy. Sometimes it's a kind of a proverb or a riddle or even a kind of a paradox. It's, um, it's often a story whose meaning doesn't lie right on the surface but is only opened up to those who are thoughtful and who, who penetrate down to the real significance behind it. Uh, most often it's a short, fictitious story given to illustrate some principle or some lesson. And Jesus told many of these, of course, you know. Some of the parables that He told were very, very short, almost like just basically a a little analogy that he made to make one very simple point. Like verse 33 of our chapter where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Just a short, simple analogy to make one point. And then sometimes the parables were longer. They were more detailed. Sort of like a short allegory where the whole story was one main analogy, but some of the details were and, and were symbolic in themselves and sort of mini analogies within the greater analogy. And of course, you have the beginning of this chapter, an example of that in the parable of the sower and the soils. And we're going to uh, read that in just a minute. But... Jesus began this chapter here and the communication of these parables very cryptically. I mean, he didn't, he didn't just come out and make his meaning plain. He, he started out by telling a story, and I know you're, you're very familiar with the story probably, of a, of a farmer who, who sows his seeds in, on the ground. And, then he finishes his story and he leaves them with no real explanation of it. 
it's just a, it's just a story. And I'm sure people were grappling with it and thinking about it and trying to make something of it, but it was really, in a way, all rather mysterious. And it's at that point, in fact, in all three of the synoptic gospels, after Jesus tells the story, every one of the synoptic gospels records his further instruction in private to his disciples about the significance of parables, about why he did his preaching to the big crowds in parables. And since he deals with that before he ever comes and makes explicit the meaning of any of these parables, that's what we're going to do. So this morning we're going to read the first story that Jesus tells, but before we really examine any real significance of that in the weeks to come, we're going to look at what Jesus says about why he taught in parables. And uh, so our focus will be verses 10 to 16 and 34 to 35, where he talks about parables. But we'll begin our reading in verse 1 and just hear this first story as it stood to the crowds. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but When the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And he just ended the story this way, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, now we read verse 10 that the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. and You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed 
are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And then if you drop down to verse 34, all these things, Matthew says, Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. I want you to just see two things this morning in this passage. And the first is the audience to whom Jesus spoke. And then the second is the answer that he gave to his disciples. Consider the audience that heard Jesus' parables. He spoke his parables. Verses 1 and 2, you see it. And we're just going to kind of go back there because it sets the background for what he begins to say to his disciples in verses 10 and following. But in one, verses 1 and 2, you see the audience of these great parables. Um, and the audience was the crowds. The crowds. And you, as you work through the Gospels, <clears throat> it becomes apparent that the Gospel writers sort of classify people in terms of their closeness to or commitment to Jesus Christ. And at the, the broadest level, the classification is the crowds, the multitudes. And then as you get nearer, you'll see him talk about the disciples. And so these uh, parables, it be that he, especially the one here right at the beginning, he's speaking in the presence of these great crowds. And if you'll drop now down to verse 10, verse 10, it says, then... After he told the story, the disciples came to him and said to him, all right, and this is actually the record of a separate um, occasion or a, a later time when they were away from the crowds. In fact, Mark, in his gospel, makes it explicit. He says this, when Jesus was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and then you have the same record that we have here in Matthew. Obviously, it, when it says when Jesus was alone, it didn't mean when he was completely alone all by himself because there were those that were, quote, with him, and then his disciples. The idea of being alone is that he's now isolated from all the vast multitudes and the crowds that had come to um, see this thing that they had heard so much about. So you begin to see a distinction between um, these audiences and who he's talking to. In fact, look at verse 10 now again, and notice carefully the disciples' question. Why do you speak to them? Why do you speak to the crowds in parables? You see, the disciples had noticed that Jesus spoke differently to them than he did to the multitudes. His teaching was different. It was, in fact, less direct. And all of his teaching was in 
in, in stories and in puzzles. This is, of course, different from how he spoke to his disciples when he opened himself to them more plainly. Um, back in chapter 4, verse 24, you don't have to turn there. Listen to this. You'll see this distinction there too. It says that Jesus' fame spread and great crowds followed him. And seeing the crowds, he went up on top of the mountain. And he sat down and his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. And in that case, his teaching is primarily to his disciples, although there were certainly others that came around eventually. And in, and in chapters 5 and 6, you have this just very direct and pastoral um, sort of instruction that the Lord gives to His disciples. I, I say again, there's, so there's a distinction between the way that the Lord speaks to the crowds and to those who are committed to Him. And they noticed it, and, and you'll see it. This is a clear distinction that's just unfolded throughout this Section. Look at verse 11, for example. Jesus says to you, to the disciples he's speaking, to you, disciples, it has been given. But to them, to the crowds, it has not been given. And again, look at verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. He said nothing to them without a parable. And then again in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house and the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he does. It's very clear that the gospel writers under the inspiration of the Spirit want us to see that there are two different audiences here. There are the vast crowds who are intrigued by Jesus. And then there are the disciples who are committed, who even if they're not yet fully committed or as committed as they ought to be for who He is, they yet somehow have ears to hear. And he addresses them very differently. There are the crowds and there are the disciples. Or to use the imagery that, that Matthew almost continues to go back to, there are those inside the house who are Jesus' true family. And those are, there are the crowds standing outside. So those are the audiences. And, of course, the question is the one that is the central question for the whole sermon, which is, why do you speak to them in parables? And so now I want to focus on Jesus' answer to that question this morning. Why, according to Jesus, did He speak to the crowds of people in His day through primarily the use of parables and proverbs and riddles. And 
Here's his answer. I'm going to say it's threefold, all right? And, and we're just going to kind of follow the contours of the text. His answer is, first of all, a direct answer in verse 11, then a kind of principial answer in principle in verse 12, and then a prophetic answer in verse 13 as Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah and from the Psalms. Uh, verse 13, 13 and following, I should say. So there's a direct answer, a principial answer, and a prophetic answer. And the direct answer is in verse 11. They can take note again of the text, and here it is. Jesus says in answer to their question, why do you speak to the crowds only with parables? He says, well, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. The direct answer is that not everyone is given the gift of insight into the secrets of God's kingdom. Right? Isn't that what he says, essentially? Not everyone is given the gift of insight into the secrets of God's kingdom. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. But let me take, uh, take a, a moment to focus our attention on one word in that answer, and that is the word secrets. You see that in your Bible? Or I don't know if you have a different version, it may be translated in a different way. I would underline it and in the margin write another word that could be translated, it could be used to translate this word, and that is the word, anybody know, starting with an M? Mysteries, right, it's the word mysteries. Jesus says, not everyone is given insight into the mysteries or the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Now, that word mysteries, we have talked about a number of times, especially since uh, the book of Ephesians together. We took quite a bit of time even to go back into Daniel and look at that. And so I'm not going to do all of that again, although I've noticed how often that continues to come up, especially since our... Uh, series together in the book of Ephesians, but that language is rooted in one Old Testament book, really one Old Testament chapter that has every occurrence of that word or the what was translated into, into Greek to, as this word uh, in the whole Old Testament. All of them are in Daniel chapter 2 except once, I believe, in Daniel chapter 4. So Daniel chapter 2 might be another passage to write near this word, mysteries or secrets. And in Daniel chapter 2, you will probably recall that King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians had a, uh, a vision, a dream, and that troubled him because he believed that that dream had real significance, that it was a portent, a revelation from God. And he was troubled because he couldn't grasp the real significance of it. And so he, of course, called all of his wise men and, you know, just anytime, anytime God does something, you know, Satan has counterfeits. And that is true. I've just been thinking about that even this week in so many ways. But but he called his wise men to, 
tell him the meanings of this dream, and, but he turned things around on them a little bit because he said, I'm not going to tell you the dream this time. You tell me the dream and then tell me its significance and then I'll know if, if this is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, he's raising the bar here, so to speak. And so, of course, none of them is able to tell him his dream and... And yet there was one in the land, Daniel by name, who was given such a measure of the Spirit of God as to have insight into this revelation. And here's what we find in Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. Listen carefully. Daniel says, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the last days, in the latter days. Right. So there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He's made it known to the king. And it's about what's going to happen in the latter days. So two things that we want to say about a mystery in terms of the Old Testament background. First... This mystery is about what will happen in the last days. Mysteries in general, all through the Scripture, point to the last days. Mysteries are eschatological. All right, They point forward, they point upward, they point to a greater reality. This... Daniel said, was God's plan for the last days. Now that term, the latter days, is a term that the New Testament writers then pick up and apply to their own day. That is the day of Jesus Christ. These days are the latter days, they say. They also call them the fullness of time or the end of the ages. You know, a lot of times... People say, are we in the last days, do you think? And I say, yes. The Bible tells us that we're in the last days. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says that Christ appeared at, quote, the end of the ages to put away sin by His death on the cross. So, in other words, Nebuchadnezzar's dream was really about the coming of Jesus Christ. And we won't go into the dream, but... There's a real significant revelation about Christ in that dream. That's the first thing to notice, that the mystery has to do with the last days. It's eschatological in nature. Secondly, this plan or this mystery was made known to Nebuchadnezzar. Right? He had the dream. God was revealing it to Nebuchadnezzar, but only in obscurity. The real significance of that mystery was hidden from him. The mystery is made known to Nebuchadnezzar, but it is revealed to Daniel in all of its fullness and clarity. Now, that is what parables are. That's what a parable is. It's a kind of a mystery. In other words, a parable is a revelation, but it's a, a veiled revelation. 
which is almost an oxymoron, I guess. It's a a revelation in obscurity. Parables, in other words, made something known, but only cryptically, only in shadowy form, so that the pearls aren't thrown to the pigs. Jesus says, a true apprehension of my teaching must be given to you from God alone. Right? And then he says, and not everyone is given that insight. An understanding of what I'm really saying is from God. And not everyone is given that understanding. God isn't obligated, friends, to grant spiritual insight to everyone. In fact, to anyone. Jesus has already said in back in chapter 11, verse 27, no one, listen to this, no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So let none of us be presumptuous so as to think that we can sort of weigh spiritual realities in the balance of our own minds and discover the truth independently of God and His mercy and His grace. And that is what a lot of people think. I I tell you, a lot of people say, you know, I'm not going to believe. I'm going to sit here objectively and look at all of the evidence and then... You know, when God proves Himself enough, then, of course, I'll, I'll go where the evidence leads. That's not, ex- that's not the way the human heart works. We saw this last week. Evidence alone never convinces sinners of the truth. Jesus says, rather, it is a gift of insight from the Father, and none of us should dare be presumptuous. Jesus' direct answer, then, is this, I speak to the crowds in parables because God is giving them, because rather God is not giving them an understanding of the real significance of what I'm saying. But then he gives a principial answer. Uh, He gives a kind of just a general principle in verse 12. You can take a look. A general principle or almost a proverb to explain again why he speaks to them in parables. And here it is. To the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I think Jesus is saying in essence, light brings more light. And darkness brings more darkness. Luke actually in his gospel connects this saying with the parable of the talents, the parable of the the minas. You remember that parable? The master went away who had some servants and he gave to each one an amount of money. He gave to the a large amount and and a medium amount and a small amount of money to his servants and then he went away and 
they were to use that money in his absence according to his wishes. And he came back, and when he came back, he found that each of the first two had doubled their money, and the last had chosen not to do anything with it except to hide it in the earth. And the master came and chided that final servant. In fact, took away what little he had and gave it to the one who had the most, who had doubled his money. In other words, Jesus here in in that parable and in in this sort of um, principial statement here, Jesus is giving us both encouragement and a warning in the very same principle. Both gain and loss are compounded, Jesus says. Spiritual gain and loss are both compounded. It's like compound interest. You discover the the wonder of compound interest where your money doesn't just make interest, but your interest makes interest? Have you ever seen a chart of interest rates over time or, 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 or the growth of your capital over time? On simple interest, it looks like a straight line, right? But with compound interest, the line is a curve going upward, and that's what we want, right? We say, that's what I need. Jesus is saying that same principle is true spiritually, that light brings more light and darkness brings more darkness. There are two principles here. One, I think we might call the principle of compounding understanding. I have found this to be true, that in my study of the Word of God and my understanding of the Scriptures, that it has grown over the years and that at first the growth, I wish I had a chart, at first the growth was very gradual and as time went on, it's a curve. That growth compounded so that it began to go up exponentially. In other words, here's the way, here's the way our understanding of the Word and our understanding of God works. When we lay hold of what He gives us, and when we make good use of it, when we study the Word that He gave us, and then the next day we get up and we study a little bit more of the Word, and then the next day we get up and we study a little bit more of the Word, and we come to church and we listen to a sermon, and we give earnest attention to it, and we work through, carefully through that passage, so that we understand that, humbly, with much prayer, we do this and do this and do this, the compounding works like this, that over time, the Word begins to reflect on another part of the Word, and on another part of the Word, and on another, so that we see not just more clearly another passage, but the interconnections between the passages. And the glorious wonder of the tapestry that has been woven for us in the Holy Scriptures. We begin to understand the deeper logic of the Word, the single Word from God 
that is the entirety of the canon of our Scripture. That's the way this works, this spiritual compounding of understanding in terms of the reading of the Word of God. And it works in our experience of living out the Word. We grow in Christian discipline, in one discipline or in one aspect of holiness. And then as we go on in our Christian lives, we we grow in another area. God begins to deal with us about that. And then as we go on, He begins to unpack for us more of our depravity and He begins to work on that area of our lives. And here's what I've found, and I don't know if you have as well, but what happens is that we see that not only is God working on individual discrete aspects of our being, but they are all interconnected and we begin to grow all together into into the person of Christ as His Spirit is creating Christ within us little by little by little. And they begin to compound one upon the other. That when I discipline myself in Bible study and in prayer and in Scripture memorization, I find that in another area, I am more consistent and more in earnest when I talk to somebody about Christ. And I wasn't working on that. I mean, the Lord wasn't dealing with my heart necessarily about that. But these things have a way of compounding like that. To the one who has, more will be given. But then it's also a warning too, right? Because I think there is not only the principle of compounding understanding, there is the principle of compounding hardness. I uh, I remember a few years ago talking to uh, a young guy who used to be connected with the, the ministry here, and we had a number of uh, quite a number of phone conversations. The, the young man had left home, had gone off into the military, and had gotten involved in um, just a lot of ungodliness and, and living in sin, and had lived that way for quite a time. And he called me, and he, he said, uh, or I think we connected on Facebook maybe first, but um, he said, Pastor John, I, I feel like I can't believe I'm really having doubts about God, about even whether there is a God. I'm having doubts about the Bible, that the Bible's really true. I mean, I heard it all my life, and I kind of believed it gullibly as a kid, but I'm really beginning to doubt it. And and he said, here's what I've done. I've I've listened to, and he started talking about some um, apologetics-type ministries and read books and things like that. And he said, I've read and I've read and I've read, but he said, I'm, I'm fearful. I, I want to believe, but I, I feel like I can't believe this. I just can't believe it. And I don't know where that young man's story is going to end up. I pray, and I prayed with him, and I continue to hope that 
that it will end with an abundance of grace. But what I want to say is this, that if we give ourselves over to hardness and living in sin and extended going on and on and on in living in sin, darkness has a way of compounding so that in the end someone may even say, I don't know if I could even believe if I wanted to. And I think this can happen with, I think it can manifest itself as intellectual doubts and denial about God's Word when at the root of it, a lot of it is just holding on to sin. There was a Bible teacher, I I tried to look it up and find out who it was, and I can't remember, but I heard them say one time um, that they have got, this has become such a, powerful point to them that sometimes when they have had young people come to them, college students come home and say, I'm pastor, I'm really struggling with my faith. That the first question would almost be, rather than tell me about your intellectual struggles, one of the first questions would be, tell me when you started sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend. In other words, you know, maybe that's a little presumptuous, but the idea is that when you determine that you're going to do your own thing, when you, when your heart is hardened to God, it has a way of compounding. Moral rebellion against God often ends in outright atheism. You keep on sinning against what you know and you may find that God takes away your ability to believe altogether. And that's part of the answer. Why Jesus gives them only cryptic stories. And there is a third answer, and it's in verse 13 and following. Jesus says... uh, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, physically that is, they can see, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah, this is from Isaiah chapter 6, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, you will indeed hear, but never understand, you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and their eyes can barely, excuse me, with their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, earlier we read, earlier we read um, John, John 12. And John quotes the same um, passage from Isaiah. And if you were really perceptive, you might have noticed a slight difference between that translation in John from Isaiah and Matthew's translation. John's translation of Isaiah says that God has blinded their eyes and God has hardened their hearts lest they see. 
and understand and turn and be healed. Which in fact is, is really a more literal translation of the Isaiah 6 original. In fact, John prefaces his quotation of this same passage by saying, therefore, they could not believe. Not that they would not. They could not. While Matthew's emphasis is that they would not believe. John And in fact, Mark and Luke and Isaiah all say that God gave them parables or he he spoke to them in such a way in order to blind the crowds to the truth, where Matthew says that the parables were because the crowds were blind to the truth. So which is true? The answer, of course, is both. And it's both because God, God, God judges blindness with blindness so often. He judges blindness with blindness. God reveals Himself in such a way that those unwilling to see are unable to see. God's hardening of a heart is is merely His meeting out of justice. He's giving hardened people more hardness. And parables, the teaching in parables, made it easier for obstinate people to remain obstinate. So Jesus is saying, So, on the one hand, we must say that the hardening of the heart is God's doing. With Luke, Mark, John, Isaiah. But on the other hand, we must say that the hardening of a a heart is man's fault with Matthew. Because God is giving him exactly what his own willful blindness deserves. There is another group, though, and it is so encouraging that Jesus ends this way. Verse 16. Take a look again at the Word of God. Verse 16. But He says, Blessed are what? Your eyes. For they see, and your ears, for they hear. These people, the disciples, are not merely getting what they deserve. They are blessed by God. They are favored with undeserved kindness. Like Jesus says to Peter in chapter 16, we'll see in a little bit, Blessed are you, Simon, Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, spiritual sight is not a human accomplishment. It is a divine gift. 
If you've heard the Word of God and it has come to you and convicted you and awakened you, if you've heard the Word of God come to you with power and it has enlivened your heart, then far be it from you to be proud of your spirituality or your sensitivity, but to say to God, thank you, O Lord, for your mercy and your kindness. You're nothing but a little child who's been given a gift. In fact, like Jesus said back in chapter 11, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from those who are, quote, wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. In fact, God's revelation to Jesus' disciples would be clearer than anything He had ever revealed before. That is, in the Old Testament. Notice again, verse, I think it's 17. Truly, Jesus says to these blessed ones, these ones who have been given sight, He says, truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You see, now the contrast is not with those sinners who are unwilling to see, but with the righteous who actually longed to see what was made known to them in mysteries, in types and shadows and parables, is now revealed in the coming of Christ. All that was shadowy in the Old Testament, looking back now from the clarity of the coming of Christ, is made manifest in a way that was a blessing from God to these disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we who see and we who hear are blessed indeed. So brothers, sisters, and friends, make good use of the means of grace that God has given you. Lay hold on them. Lay hold of the Word and prayer. Lay hold of Christ. Lay hold of preaching with humble, repentant faith so that to those who have, more will be given. And I say also that with such great um, privilege comes great responsibility. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And so the message of Matthew in these couple of chapters just continues on here, I think. Don't willfully close your eyes to the Lord. Don't turn your ears away from hearing His Word. The convicting voice of the Holy Spirit. Because for someone who does that, 
God may just confirm him in that rebellion so that he is utterly unable to ever turn back again. Hear the word of Christ. And I pray that you have ears to hear. And I just leave you once again with those same words from Hebrews 3 that I've quoted so many times in the last two Sundays. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Open your eyes, open your heart to the Lord and give Him thanks. Our Father in heaven, we, we do give you praise and blessing for regular awakenings. We have felt, everyone in here I think has felt our eyes dimming at times and our ears growing heavy. And somehow in your mercy, so many of us have experienced an awakening. And then as we have opened your word and given ourselves to it, you've continued to open our eyes, transform us. Lord, please keep us on that path. Please don't let us go. Please don't let us become utterly hardened. Lord, help us always to hear the significance of everything that you have to say and to receive it. And then I want to say, Lord, we want to say that if there are any in our midst whose eyes have never been opened, that you would take even this word that you have proclaimed to us today and cause it to be the means of a miracle, the opening of the blind eyes and the hearing for the deaf the leaping for the lame, and the singing for the mute. Lord, let it be that. Please save souls and keep and grow those who are yours. And we will forever praise you because every bit of this is an undeserved gift. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.